I'm Edward Nersessian, director of the Helix Center. Uh, today's, uh, today's program on empathy was uh, suggested to us by uh, Alberto Manguel and through a discussion with uh, Beverly Zabriskie, we put this round table together. Uh, so uh, Beverly is going to, who's a member of the uh, executive committee of the center, will introduce the speakers, the members, the participants at the roundtable. I just want to tell you that the next roundtable, which will be the last for this year, is on mathematics and other realities. It was proposed by Harald Amspacher, who is uh, a physicist from... Uh, uh, Zurich, and uh, that will be the last one for 2019, and we are looking forward to 2020. Beverly. is our sort of World Series team on the humanities side. So I'm terribly grateful to all of you for coming, and I just want to say a few words about each of you. But just in general, I tried to add up the number of prizes and the number of volumes published by this group. And it became too long to even begin to mention. It's an astonishingly distinguished group. So I'm going to start with Siri here. Um, I first met Siri uh, when we did an interview together at the Rubin Museum when there was Jung's Red Book exhibit. And in that, she spoke as an author, but also a person who has tremendous knowledge of neuropsychoanalysis, and she spoke of her own experience also, her own mind-body experience. And there's nothing so um, enlightening as to hear one person speak in the most irrefutable way about what it is to be a human being with both a mind and body. And her list of awards is enormous, and what book of yours would you most like us to know about? I'm going to ask each of you that question. Oh my God, in this group? Maybe it's a book, the big title is A Woman Looking at Men Looking at Women, but inside that book there's a 200-page essay on the mind-body problem. 
It's called The Delusions of Certainty. I highly recommend it. <laughs> and Yi-Yang Lee is the author of six books, including two-story collections, A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, Gold Boy, Emerald Girl, and three novels. And she's also been chosen by the New Yorker as one of the 20 fiction writers under 40 to watch. Are you still under 40? No. <laughs> <laughs> but we're watching. <laughs> and what of your books would you most want this group to read? Well, I would say my latest novel, Where Reasons End. That's a book that I want to keep alive. Uh-huh. Where Reasons End. Yes. Wonderful. Good title. So I've just met today Yan Lee, and I've also just met today Percival Everett, who's a distinguished professor of English at the University of Southern California, and he's come here today to be part of this program from Southern California. Thank you. He's an author of 30 books, mostly novels. He's won numerous awards, honors, and fellowships, the most recent being the Distinguished Achievement Award from the Western Literature Association in 2018. As he puts it, if you do a thing long enough, that just happens. I haven't noticed that. <laughs> Here are a few of his titles, Glyph, Erasure, So Much Blue, and Percival Everett by Virgil Russell, and I am not Sidney Poitier, but we're glad you're you and we're glad you're here. <laughs> And Joe is a friend. Uh, oh, yeah. Whoa, so sorry. First of all, what would you recommend? The next one. <laughs> What's the title? Uh, uh, telephone. On the telephone? Yes. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Joe is a dear friend. He's a professor of comparative literature at Bard, and he's the author of Romantic Europe and the Ghost of Italy. And he received the Scaglione Prize for Italian Studies. He's written several books on poetry and cinema and the aesthetics of the Italian art film. And he also wrote a book about our shared uh, ancestry, the two Italys, an Italian family in Italy and an Italian family here. And he also wrote, was what is probably, I think, an archetypal version of what it's like to use an author to develop empathy for oneself. When he wrote a book, What Dante Taught Me About Grief, Healing, and the Mysteries of Love. So, welcome. I'll recommend that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then Alberto. This began with Alberto. We wanted Alberto to come back ever since he did the program on the library few years ago, and he has won. He, Alberto gets a prize a month, <laughs> and he's always traveling around the world receiving one. And he, up until, um, I think, five years ago, Alberto lived in France, and then came, moved here to New York, which is our great gain. And then he went to be the director of the Argentine National Library, which he did until this past year. 
And now he's here living in New York. And he didn't list any of his books, so I had to look them up, <laughs> the ones I didn't know about. The last one was called Monsters, Dracula, Alice, Superman, and Other Fabulous Literary monsters. Friends. Fabulous Monsters. So I'll read them again. Dracula, Alice, Superman, and other literary friends. And his own drawings are throughout the book. And now that you see him, you will recognize his drawings of himself. <laughs> packing My Library, which was about packing the 40,000 volumes in his library in France and bringing them to the Western Hemisphere. Um, a Reader on Reading, A History of Reading the Library at Night, and there is now a traveling exhibit that Alberto has done of a virtual reality with Robert Lepage of the nine great library, nine great libraries of the world, including the, the library, his own. Yeah. Yes. Ten libraries. Library Ten libraries. So it's gone around the world. We're hoping it will come to New York. So welcome all, and I'm really looking forward to this. Okay, we're supposed to start, everyone. Does, do, do we have any kind of agreement about what empathy is? Or maybe just when you use the word, how you use it? I think it's a good way to begin. My sense was that there's always, I always uh, define empathy against or in conjunction with sympathy. And the way I think about it, I don't know what the technical definition is, you can all help me, is that sympathy is a sort of sharing of pain, sympatia, sympatos, and that empathy was a kind of an imagining of or a sort of um, seeing yourself in the place of sort of thing. So almost less visceral than sympathy and a little more intellectual and emphasis more on the imagination. But oh, that wow. was just my, um, you know, working definition before I got this invitation. <laughs> I can say I don't often have sympathy for my characters, but I do have empathy all the time for my characters, <laughs> especially bad ones, you know. I have characters who try to murder people. <laughs> I have characters who try to steal babies. And I, I think it's hard to be sympathetic, but I, I always think it's important to be empathetic. But is that that you're feeling with and in them? I, I feel in them. I live in them. Right. So it's a different definition already. That's why this is interesting. Yeah. I, I live yeah. in my characters, yeah. yeah. In English, the term begins as a translation of Einfühlung. It does, certainly. Um, so it's a recent term, but it, yes, it, it conveys the idea that you were talking about go into the character and It, it was aesthetics. It's Robert mm -hmm. Vischer. So it's mm -hmm. Einfühlung, and it's quite late, mm -hmm. uh, and it's about feeling one's way into a work of art, mm -hmm. which was later, I think it's in the little squib about this, translated into empathy by Titchener. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's also associated with the, the idea of abstraction with the with Vorling. Yeah. But, and, and elaborate. No. <laughs> oh, that, there's a what, early 20th century, 1908 dissertation by, um, I don't remember his first name, Vorling, who, who was attempting to um, uh, Write a, a a treatise on the on universal beauty, the the, the impossibility of it, um, and it became a um, uh, 
a bit of a of a of a what would you call it um, a, a motto for the abstract expressionist um, in trying to get to pure feeling. And how did he use empathy? Um, it hasn't been translated, and I worked at it really hard. Uh-huh. And my understanding is that is that uh, the empathy is, is comes about with the mere abstraction of the feeling. Yeah, this is um, the uh, the. See how many definitions we have already. Yeah, I I I think I make a distinction myself between, um, for lack of a better term, uh, maybe uh, judgmental empathy and emotional empathy. Right. The emotional empathy being feeling what other people are feeling, but the other one merely being able to stand in their, their place and understand their perspective. I think that's a very important distinction, judgmental and emotional empathy, because um, from the point of view of, of a reader, the empathy you feel with characters is initially an emotional empathy, if you feel that empathy. And then it becomes judgmental. You 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 love the the character. Well, um, Percival has a, a novel that's very powerful um, uh, called The Water Cure, where um, a father uh, tortures the man who killed or tortured his daughter, and you can understand the character, you feel empathy for the character, emotional empathy, because you say, if somebody did this to one of my children, of course I would go there. And then you become judgmental. But I think that's a, a, a weaker way of relating I, to I the character. I think judgment is not empathy. I mean, I think let's make distinctions here. I mean, that's what's important. How can a judgment be empathy? No, it's not it's a judgment not a that's feeling. empathy. It's empathy <laughs> that's judgmental. It's not the same thing. And empathy can be judgmental if you say, um, I'm very fond of Little Red Riding Hood, but she should have obeyed her mother. And no, but I think those straight. are two distinct things that we have to separate. In other words, so, for example, well, I think if we want to be rigorous, I think there's a rigorous distinction that can be made, and that distinction is, so, if it's about feeling as the other, say, in a work of fiction, mm-hmm. while you are swept up in the work of fiction, um, as Georges Poulet says, you know, the eye of the text becomes one's internal eye, which I think is an avenue to empathy. In order to make the judgment, you have to, in some way, withdraw from the text. I I don't think so. I think that when you, um, for want of a better word, identify with the character, you do it emotionally, and almost immediately or simultaneously, you are judging yourself as that character. So I I wouldn't separate them in such neat distinctions, at least for me. I don't know if... Yeah, what do I, mean, I wonder want? if there's a difference between readers and writers. And I don't think a writer ever judges. Uh-huh. A reader can come in with that judgment. But you feel that certain writers should judge. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but like, if you're 
from a writer's point of view, if you judge, doesn't it mean you right away you lose this empathy for your well, it's, characters? It's not necessarily a, it's mm. a valuative um, judgment. Yeah, okay. it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an understanding of perspective. Mm. Right. And that is a judgment, but it's not giving um, um, uh, preference to any thinking about that, that action or, or that situation. I mean, the thing about empathy that I find troubling as you know, moving through the world is, is I wonder if, if, if the subjects for whom I'm to feel empathy as a, as a good person um, have a certain responsibility. I mean, do I have empathy for, um, I don't want to, <laughs> you know who I'm thinking about, but I will say. <laughs> I will say John Dillinger. Right. Do I have empathy for, for a murderer, a mass murderer? Right. Um, well, if I can feel what he's feeling, then I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. um, um, and even if I can put myself into his shoes and imagine what he's doing, then I should be afraid. So is, the, is there a possibility for empathy in that place? Well, take an easier example like crime and punishment. Mm -hmm. Crime punishment is a great example of entering inside Raskolnikov yeah. and a horrifying act. It's, I mean, I have empathy for Raskolnikov, mm -hmm. which is rather frightening. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, do you think that you would act like that? <laughs> no. <laughs> so you're judging. No, I'm saying, I think that, I think that, again, I do think, actually, that, that the, those experiences may, as you say, come right one after another, or even on top of each other, or even be a kind of mixed experience. But I do, I don't think mm. that we can call the, that feeling in, if we want to do Einfühlung. Mm -hmm. Einfühlung is entering in. There's a beautiful uh, work by Edith Stein called On Empathy, where she talks about empathy as a foreign experience, but while you're there, you take the place of the subject in real empathy. And, um, I, and then you have to come back to judge I, it. I'll use the example of, of Joe's book, which moved me uh, very much, um, in the dark forest? In, the, in a dark wood. In a dark wood. Um, that uh, takes as his model the divine comedy. And uh, Joe, in losing his wife, speaks of uh, Dante uh, losing Beatrice and finding Beatrice. And the empathy that he feels with that story, I feel in his book, while going to the source in Dante, I feel empathy with everything that's happening, but my empathy with Dante's Beatrice is judgmental because I find her uh, a cold, unfeeling uh, uh, woman who, who I'm not supposed to judge because I'm not supposed to understand the justice of God. So there are so many levels. I don't think that there is a, a, a cutoff point 
um, in what the reader uh, feels and what the reader judges and what the reader then reflects back to the reader um, saying this is thereby except for the grace of God go I um, this is what we how we identify with certain characters don't you think you know now that you brought up the book I think the one thing I could say is um, where it seems like you're true at uh, at loggerheads is that you are emphasizing that feeling in and you say that can't happen with judgment because judgment is a kind of establishes a distance and Alberto's saying well do we have to separate them necessarily that you know one can read feel one one's one's way into a text and also while one's doing so doesn't necessarily have to suspend judgment I guess what I would say in the case of, you know, reading my uh, story into this character, Dante, what I learned afterwards, I had studied Dante for decades, really, and, you know, I'd, I'd written heavily footnoted stuff on him and whatnot, but I found that empathy could actually be a cognitive um, journey because I felt when I heard Dante's voice, and it was more, less Beatrice and more the loss of Florence, because he went into exile. Yeah. So he had lost his hometown and wandered through Italy the last 20 years. The poem came alive to me when I could, there's a passage in uh, Paradiso when he says, should it ever come to pass that this sacred poem to which heaven and earth have set their hand basically would get me back to Florence, then I will take the laurel crown as poet. And hearing that voice, empathizing with the poem for the first time rather than seeing it as an object of study, brought me, I think, scholarly insights. Right. Uh, even the, the canto where he's, uh, there's this famous um, canto, he's ex, uh, the canto of Ulysses, right, in Inferno, which was so influential for Primo Levi, helped him keep his humanity in Auschwitz. When I, I had studied that canto for decades, but only after my late wife's death and going back to my hometown as I needed my family's help to raise my, we, our daughter, I sensed that same sense of Ulysses not being able to go back to Ithaca. And so that was an empathetic thing that to me brought this great cognitive insight. You, so so right. I'm kind so of with Alberto in the sense that one can read oneself in and invest in something, and at the same time, it doesn't have to have that suspension of judgment. No, no, I'm not saying. <laughs> see, I'm not saying that it's just feeling, and one doesn't have judgments, thoughts, or that feeling okay. doesn't generate all kinds of intellectual activity. I think it does, um, and I think then, you know, I'm sorry to bring the science into it, but sure. for example, if you look at what you think of as possibly forms of pre-personal uh, empathy in a phenomenon such as mirror neurons that almost everybody has heard of. I think it was found in macaque monkeys in the early 90s where uh, a monkey grasping a banana, the same neurons are firing as the monkey who's watching, hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it's per action perception. This also appears to be present in human beings. 
it is something that may become conscious in something like mirror touch synesthesia, right. where you look at someone else being touched and you have a sensation yourself. Right. So motor sensory forms of empathy exist without that intellectual ingredient. Right. The mirror touch synesthete is not thinking about, oh, geez, what does it mean to feel this or that? It's a motor sensory mm. response. Mm. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to make certain distinct distinctions like that. Now, that motor sensory response was considered very important in the 19th century when Einfühlung was mm. uh, being discussed. Um, Lips, for example, all these different German theorists, they were interested in the motor sensory responses usually to visual art, mm. right? Mm. Now, um, Siri, what you say is important in terms of the relationship that readers or writers mm -hmm. ha have with literature. Um, the physical learning or the mirror learning in society yeah of empathy in the sense of feeling other people's suffering and needs and opinions. Um, do you think that literature has is a better gateway to learning these things than, than the actual being in society? It's mm, a good mm. question. Um, yes. <laughs> um, but one thing about even when you mention the, 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 the monkeys, there's a shared experience that's mm -hmm. necessary for that empathy. The one monkey has to know about food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so if you're asking me to feel empathy for someone um, during their homicidal act, I have no experience <laughs> with that. And so um, I don't think it's, it's possible for me to have anything other than a cognitive sort of, of, of empathy toward, toward that person. I can, say, oh, I can see why you might have wanted to kill this person, but it's a bad thing. As a novelist, when I have a character who does a horrific thing, and the, the, the yeah. character that you mentioned who tortures the, the man whom he believes, he yeah. only believes. Yeah, that's is, worse. Yeah, is, yeah. He's, he's not sure. Is the, um, is the uh, murderer of his daughter. Uh, certainly as soon as I, I imagined him, I imagined him doing something wrong. Oh. It's not that I imagined him doing something that I would or would not do. No. He's doing a bad thing. Yeah. Um, and that's never divorced from my thinking about him or his action. That doesn't mean that I don't have feelings for what he's doing. And you have to be him way. when you're writing it. Well, no. don't remind me. <laughs> you, you, you said that you, as a writer, you don't have that uh, relationship I, to your characters. Because when Percival said, you know, you felt that he was doing something wrong. And I think maybe from my experience, you know, one of my biggest fears growing up was had I been born in Cultural Revolution, would I become one of the teenagers who would be the teacher to death? And I always thought, well, I could. You know, there's no reason to say no, absolutely not. So I wrote this character who kicked the pregnant mother, you know, deformed the baby. I, I, I think 
at least in the writing part of it, I felt I could be that person. I, when you said frightening, it was it's, it was one of the most frightening experiences. Empathy can be frightening. Yes. Sure. Yes. Yeah. yes. I, I was going to ask. I think it might be an important distinction to draw as to whether any important human emotions don't always partake of judgment of some sort. Like, it, like I think we're trying to draw out this idea that within the, the feeling is already falls within a context that involves judgment at some level. Maybe not moral judgment, like, oh, you should go to jail, but some sort of value judgment of some sort. Oh, but do you think that what restrains us from uh, acting out our feeling of empathy for a character that is doing things that are judged horrible do you think that's in the feeling of empathy itself, or as you were suggesting, it comes later as something separate as judgment? When when I when I look at Raskolnikov, uh, am I seeing someone who uh, acts in a way that I think is justifiable? Yeah, I, I think maybe going to child development will help a little bit, right? So that there's a certain moment, you know, and it's various depending on the researchers, when the idea of empathy is possible. But very early on in human life, uh, infants will imitate the faces of adults. Uh, there are certain infant researchers who believe that empathy arrives much earlier or that children get a sense of you know, relationality to the other, the mother usually much earlier. So the question then, again, is obviously an infant is not making any judgments. Does that mean that very young children or infants are incapable of empathy? I don't think so. And in fact, one-year-olds now, this is you know, in some of the research, seem to have very empathetic responses, but they may not be saying, oh, this is a good thing that I'm patting mom mm. because she's crying. But uh, is there not a difference between those physical uh, learnings and the ones that come through the relationship to fiction and mm. art in general? Well, well, yeah. You know, I think if you think about this as a literature professor, this, I think about this all the time. And I'm kind of of two minds of it, on it. On the one hand, um, it strikes me as if you ask the question, it suggests a priori that literature has kind of lost its place as a cultural value in itself because you're asking, can we instrumentalize it a bit? Is it going to make us better? It, what's right, your, right. your brain on Jane Austen? Is that going to make you a better person? <laughs> but again, I, I realize we live in the real world and we have to answer those questions. You know, for the ancient Greeks, it was this idea of catharsis. So if you did see something, you did see a murderous display on stage, somehow it was supposed to cleanse you of, of those similar things. So it did have that kind of socially, I'm sorry, socially, uh, social valence. Um, Today, I think, you know, in terms of uh, do, does, does literature breed empathy, um, the way I look at it is like, I think of Aristotle's definition. He says, history tells us what happened. It gives us a, something concrete, something real, but it's contingent. And epic poetry, we can extrapolate from that literature, gives us these universals 
it's like you said in your talk at Bard, uh, errori non falsi, right? Errors, they're not true. It's Dante. Dante, right. They, they, they're, they're not necessarily true, but they're, they're somehow real. Like, I, I think of literature as creating these real situations out of the make-believe that, um, of course, we can empathize with them by analogy. You know, take, for example, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. Um, it's, make, it's fiction, right? But to me, what will tell you more about a woman's experience in the 1920s? What will help you empathize more? Or a boy's experience. For, for me, it, the empathy was at the very beginning when the mother promises to take him to the lighthouse and the father says, uh, the mother says, if it doesn't rain, and the father says, it will rain. And the, the, the kid wants to murder the father. I, I felt that that was so true because it, it pops up so many times. Somebody who looks at that negative side and just dismantles that whole illusion that you have created. But you were talking about Aristotle. Let's be a little pedantic here. Uh, Aristotle uses the word empathy only once. No, you mean uh, catharsis. No, I, uh, oh. catharsis. But yeah. he uses the word empathy, empathos, just All once. Right. And he uses it to indicate an imitation. He talks about a coward. And when the coward reads about soldiers escaping, the coward will feel this in his dreams, and he right, says that right, this is right, empathous. Right. It's very similar to what we are saying, that it reflects on in our own psyche, um, but we still haven't solved where the judgment is in <laughs> no, that No, but I think it's, it's very interesting to make the distinction that you made, and, and we're, I think, trying to make between uh, human experience in the world and what happens when we read a work of fiction and how it's different. And I think, you know, there's something I like to call it the aesthetic frame, whatever you want, that there's a safety involved in dangerous experiences in fiction mm -hmm. that allows us an exit, but it also allows us an expansion of consciousness not possible in the real world because I would not have coffee with Raskolnikov. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would save myself that experience. But mm -hmm. in literature, you don't have to. But that is, that is the extraordinary instrument that we have invented as a species to survive, which is the imagination that allows us to have an experience before having the experience, not having the experience at all. And also, I think that um, literature in, in, in all these works, in yours, uh, organizes that chaotic fragmentation of reality where in order to make sense of what surrounds us every day, what we experience every day, we need to turn it into a story that we tell ourselves, but it's better when we read it in uh, the Brontes or <laughs> that kind of... Our, our, our culture also conditions us yeah. in our reception. Yes. Of, 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 of art and, and one of the things that I find distressing um, now is, is, is the voyeuristic yeah. um, uh, uh, side of, of, of consuming art and we see it all the time we see it in 
when whenever there's a film, it's based on a true story. Yeah. And, that, and that's a selling device. Uh, it's not a true story. Even if it's based on true, it's all made up. And, and, and it can be good or bad, but... It, it's a contrary of the lines that writers used to yes. put. This is not based on... <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's a, the, a, the, most, yeah, the most egregious example of this, I once got a book um, that was a novel, and you know the editor had sent a little note out. The novel was about a rape, and in the letter it said, and just so you know, the author of the novel actually was raped, and she will is allowing, yeah. you know, she's going to talk about the yeah. actual rape yeah. in relation to the fictional rape. Yeah. And I remember, I listen, it might have been a wonderful book, but I just put it down. And this is, you know, what was Simone Weil said, 75% of our life is imagination and fiction. And, uh, I and that's not known. <laughs> but, but just to play devil's advocate a bit, because yes. I'm obviously, I'm, you know, by um, by necessity, I'm aligned with this position as a as a teacher of books of literature, and I, I want them to, you know, permeate the world and people to be reading <laughs> constantly. But I think, for example, of my mom. Right? She she's an immigrant from southern Italy. Great school education. Very intelligent woman. But she's not a reader. Never has been. She's a deeply empathetic person. Of now, course. Does yes. one have to? In other words. I, I wonder what literary people, if they they back themselves into a hole, if they push the literature makes you more empathetic model. No, it, it makes you not. It has the possibility of right. making you. But if you go that way, it's easier than experiencing all this shit that surrounds us in the world and <laughs> filtering it. I, I hear you. So I guess what I'm saying is there a, a, another way to uh, frame or contextualize the literature expands empathy um, argument. You mentioned an expansion of consciousness and I mean, uh, you know, and now I'm thinking out loud because I don't know what that frame would be, but I, I just worry about a kind of, uh, you know, there's a tendency in literary criticism now with a neurocriticism where they're sort of finding what your brain does as you read a certain right, book. Right, I think right. it's fascinating. It's wonderful, but I also feel like it's part of the dominate, you know, the scientific discourse is always going to take precedence right, over right. the humanistic one and kind of now it's even starting to drive they literary studies. far in the Middle Ages. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long time ago. Your mother might be the Roger Federer of feeling empathy. <laughs> um, As a tennis fan, yeah. I would be very thrilled about that. Uh, however, if, if, if she were the Percival Everett of, 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 of that practice, would make her better at it. I see. Mm -hmm. yeah. no, no, I th no, but these are, I think these are great points, actually. So we don't want to say, which, by the way, in some of these studies, there's Keith Oatley. I don't know if you know who he yes, is. I He's do, yeah. the person who's sort of gone the furthest, right. making the argument that reading literature makes you more empathetic. They've mm -hmm. done empirical studies, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at some of those studies, I think methodologically there are some fudgy stuff in there. Um, and is empathy, if we're talking about feeling in or feeling as, hmm. always the best thing? <laughs> or it certainly isn't enough for no, the, reading I mean, literature. I shouldn't be dogmatic about this. Um, 
we, as readers, um, have a certain experience, which is individual. It's not, not collective, not and it's all. not the same from one reader to the other. So I trust my experience with literature, and I know that throughout my childhood, where I didn't have a relationship with any, mm. any other human beings except one nanny until I was eight, uh, I knew the world. I knew mm. adventures and death and love and betrayal, and I knew all these things from stories. And so I trust that. I hear that. I guess my thinking is, I do think there are some things, some contemporary issues that literature really does, reading more and reading better really does affect. For example, one's ability to detect fake news. I, th I really think that the more, <laughs> no, like seriously, yeah. the more you, because literature is, is a, fundamentally an act of processing verbal information, imagining out from that, and sort of, it, 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 it hones critical thinking along mm -hmm. with creative imaginative mm -hmm. thinking. So I do think that one can essentially index that the more one reads, the more one is exposed to literature, the less likely one is to be susceptible to fake news. So, you know, that I would go on a limb on scientifically. I'm wondering, you know, how to sort of uh, contextualize the rubric of empathy within something that is, you know, more aligned with what reading is and what writing is, which is processing stories and narratives and, you know, working with language. That's, that's my question. Maybe it's just that literature gives us the words to uh, say what we experience. Mm -hmm. And that is enough. But, so, oh, yeah, go say something. <laughs> you know, I, I, I did this experiment with a, a, a class one time. And when you say, you know, literature gave them the words to say things. But oftentimes, young students will just say things about themselves. Of course. So I give them an assignment. I said, you know, this is going to be an assignment. You know, do not write your, about yourself. Write about something else. And you said inanimate object. It turned out the backpack is talking about them. So their, their sneakers are talking about them. <laughs> they, so They're good readers because they, literature talks about you all the time. So points a I, finger at you and say you know, this is you or this is not you. Are we, are we, you know, sometimes maybe reading or thinking of, they actually narrowing down themselves. Of course, we're reading stories all the time. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and not just on pages. We look out our window and we see two people we don't know having a discussion. Um, and we read their body language. Um, yeah. We read their facial expressions. And when they look at the, at the unlocked side door in your house, then you start reading the situation differently. <laughs> so it's, 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 a, it's a constant thing that we, we do. What we don't have in that situation is access to the interior worlds of those people. And that's what right. Right. literature does. Right. Yeah, so. right. absolutely right. That's right. Because we're creating narratives, I mean, out of that situation all the time. You see someone go mm -hmm. into a store, and she comes out with a bag. We haven't seen anything inside mm -hmm. the store, mm -hmm. but we link the events mm -hmm. and create a narrative out of it. Um, I want to reframe this just a bit because actually uh, sort of psychodynamically empathy is quite neutral. Hmm. It can be used in a positive sense yeah. or a negative sense. Hmm. And the best example of that was a German film, The Lives of Others, mm -hmm. yep. Yep. where a Stasi agent 
is incredible as a torturer because he can feel right into mm -hmm. someone. Mm -hmm. And certainly people who are analysts and therapists know how careful one has to be by even just echoing something mm -hmm. one has said to you because it could go straight in like an arrow, mm -hmm. not a bomb. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the film, he's developed positive empathy for the people that he was originally torturing and then comes to their rescue. But it's very neutral and can be a very dangerous mm -hmm. weapon, and I don't want to politicize but, things, but, but before Alberto, meant, I mean, when yeah. Alberto first mentioned this theme, right after that, Obama put out his list of his what he was reading this year, and he said the point was to develop empathy through reading mm. for others that we don't know. But we know that people in power can use empathy in a very negative and destructive way, so I don't want to sentimentalize the word. No, but, but wouldn't it be actually, if you're torturing someone, then if you were having empathy, you would be also feeling the torture. No, you see, that's what, but you feel the, your thrill about the other person's being tortured. And that you would usually fall that. into psychopathic kinds of reading. Right, but yeah. empathy can be used extremely well by con men. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the point. I just don't want it to get but sentimental. Actually, if you, looking at the research on this, torturers, people, uh, you know, they would not fall into the empathetic category because they couldn't be feeling, they can be reading the other very well. But, but if you're actually experiencing, say, in the Edith Stein thing, that you're experiencing some form of pain along with your victim. That's what you're arguing. No, I'm saying that you can get turned on by it. That aggression is a very large turn on and sadism is, I, I just want to keep, keep mm -hmm. it real That's here. Right. That's right. Yeah. So sadism is when you have an erotic response to the other's pain. And the erotic response you were reading then as empathy. No. No, I'm sorry, I just want to get it straight. So. Yeah, it's Beverly, the I'm just suggesting that we have to keep in mind the purpose and the motivation for empathy. And if one knows how to feel into somebody else's pain, one can use that as a weapon. Right. And that there is a kind of, um, you could call it erotic or not, but there is a turn on, there's a whole turn on that happens. And I think that's what we're seeing in our society now. I just listened to a program on NPR today of an ICE agent and what they were going through as they were turning people away at the border. So we just have to be very aware of what we use our capacity to feel into other people's experience. No, I'll, 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 I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No. No, you, no. no, what about people who don't experience empathy? Yeah, that's what I'm The reason I'm asking is, you know, I'm raising a child who's an Asperger, you know, on, on autism spectrum. He's very articulating. He said, I feel sympathetic about a lot of things, mm -hmm. but I just don't feel empathy. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder what about people who don't feel empathy and do, do, we, do they train themselves by reading or do they learn? 
I think people, the research on this, on psychopathy and then autism, which is very different, mm -hmm. um, but the, the research on psychopathy is all over the place. Mm -hmm. They know that, that guilt and empathy seem mm -hmm. to go together, that having no empathy also means having no guilt. Uh, and the reasons are everything from neural networks mm -hmm. to, you know, being raised in a certain way to, you know, it's just endless. Nobody yeah. knows. But empathy can be used um, as a tool. Um, I'm referring to what Beverly said about torture. Um, in, during the military dictatorship in Argentina, uh, France sent their torture specialists from the War of Algiers to Argentina to train the military mm -hmm. in torture. And um, the documents were published. And so one of the things was that uh, the torture has to feel, and they use the word empathy for the victim, in order to know what will hurt the victim most. Because sometimes it's not a physical pain. And so they, well, I won't give you examples because they're horrible. But it, it wasn't a question of empathy in order to feel that person's pain. It was empathy in order to know that person's pain and know where to direct the needle. So what is the difference between knowing yeah, and feeling? Yeah. I mean, in a way... Uh, that, that's so a very good question. It is. But could part of it be back to the start of our conversation, when one is sympathetic towards someone, one shares. That word has the word sharing built into it. Empathy doesn't. I agree. I think you're right. I mean, empathy is a, is a neutral, it, it, it happens and it can be used for good or ill. But sympathy seems different. Maybe sympathy is that sharing of pain that sort of um, would harness the potentially negative applications of empathy. But it also has a certain connotation, sympathy, of um, arrogance or superciliousness. I feel sympathy towards what you are doing, but I can't condone it, or I can't condone it, so I put myself in, in, in a position of uh, 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 excusing or not excusing what you're doing, but from uh, a higher uh, level. Instead, empathy goes into mm. the character, goes into mm. the person that you're facing. No? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's yeah. feeling well, as. That's what I think it, the usual definition but, but, is. Is it but, feeling or knowing? It's not knowing. Yeah. I it's think not it's knowing. Feel, to me, it's empathy. feeling as. Well, that becomes an epistemological question, yeah. and it I don't know if you can do that. But, but in, imagine. Um, uh, two people who are in the in the same accident and they both lost uh, children in this accident. Um, does it make sense to say that one feels sympathetic mm -hmm. to the other when they're experiencing the, the mm -hmm. same thing? Would one ever say that? Would one person say to the other, "I feel sympathy for you"? Never. And no, I can't imagine no. that. No. Um, but neither can I imagine the use of the word empathy. In, 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 in that right. circumstance. So, but obviously both, we're talking about two people who would be capable of either. But and what would you define, that's a very interesting situation, what would you call that feeling between these two mm -hmm. people? 
Well, that shared experience, I don't have a word for it. Uh, there, there's an NPR news a few years ago about the two girls in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, they were they were they were they cut school and they were lying down on the on the train track, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. having a conversation, and they both fell asleep. Mm -hmm. And the train came and cut all four legs, and that's the wow. situation where. They said the two girls were teenagers. They said only we know each other now, what we hmm. experience. So right. it's not even I feel the pain in my leg or, but it's actually we know what we we know each other. They said. Hmm. Well, maybe a way to answer the question would be through an analogy, uh, a fictional analogy. There's the the scene in Othello early on where. Um, Othello, who's this great general, but he's like in his 40s, which was really old back then. <laughs> Wasn't the new 20, right? Uh, it was like being 60 today or something. Uh, and he's married Desdemona, the, you know, the most eligible woman in all of Venice. And this, the senators can't handle this, that there's this great general, but he's a Moor, he's a foreigner, right? He's not um, of the Italian aristocracy. And they call him to account and they say, Othello, what, you know, what potion did you give Desdemona? How did you bewitch her? And he, he says, basically, I told her my life story. And to hear it, would Desdemona seriously incline? Um, told her a story. So. He told her a story. So yeah. that's an example of a story, a fictional construct, eliciting a, he uses the word compassion. Um, mm -hmm. Is that a sympathetic, to me, that's, a sympathetic reaction, a sharing, you know, to, to harp on the, the root of the word wonder, rather than an empathy. It's so powerful. Yeah. And he says, that's the only witchcraft that I used. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, along those lines, I wanted to ask about the sort of interface between imitation, yes. which does come up in some of the neuro, neuroscience studies, but everyone knows what imitation is. On the one hand, how does that interface with empathy? And I think this also gets to the question of knowing versus feeling. Right. Uh, I, I'm thinking of people who have autism, let's say, and are idiot savants, and they could play these gorgeous, you know, Bach fugues with, with what appears to be great feeling. And I defy any of you to say they are having the feeling, they're not having the feeling. Right. It's quite confusing. But imitation is somehow interrelated with empathy. Well, absolutely. Uh, the fictional example par excellence is Don Quixote. <laughs> Uh, yeah. who imitates the heroes of the novels of chivalry he has read. Yeah. And he does it very well. It's the world that's not prepared for his ethics. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's a, a little like trying to identify a speech act. Um, and the, the, the story that I'm reminded of is the philosopher's old joke about the parrot, where the, the plumber comes to the door and he knocks. No one is at home, but the parrot says, who is it? And the plumber responds, it's the plumber. He knocks again. The parrot says, who is it? He responds again until he, the man is so worked up, he bangs on the door, the door crashes in, he falls down dead of a heart attack. The family comes home, and, and they look on the phone and say, who is it? And the, and the parrot says, the plumber. <laughs> um, no. Is it, a, is, 
Is he making sense? <laughs> right, right. Well, and I mean, the, the imitation thing, I think this is a great question, actually. I mean, Darwin talks about it in, um, in his book about emotions in human beings and animals and how there's a mimicry um, that's part of certainly mammalian experience. And that's, you know, I mentioned the babies imitating faces, and then that response seems to uh, go away, actually, with maturity. And in certain neurological patients, there's chronic imitation as well. It's as if there's some form of disinhibition that has happened through the injury, and people just start imitating uh, the doctor, for example, if they're in conversation with the doctor. So, you know, what is the connection between these imitative responses? Or if you're reading a book, the thing that John Dewey calls, I love this, organic clicks. He talks about that when you're reading poetry and, you know, either the sounds or the music or the meanings of the words create these, you know, moments of excitement. Or Suzanne Langer is another great philosopher, I think, about um, experiencing art, not just as, say, these judgments or thoughts or intellectual uh, experiences, but also as rhythmic experiences that are very much embodied Mm-hmm. And that through that embodiment, there are meanings attached to that. I mean, poetry, I mean, Dante, we talked about is a great example um, of music being part of the experience mm-hmm. of walking with Dante, which is very much a walk. Um, but I certainly don't think we should disassociate intellect from feelings. I think. No, I, I, think, I agree yeah. with you, but I'm saying that, that we can nevertheless talk about rhythm and music as part of the experience that is connected to empathy. Oh, certainly. Yeah. But also absolutely inextricably connected to one's intellect as well. I right, don't think I you, can, you, can, you can separate feelings and intellect. Yeah, I think what you're saying is very important in your introduction of the word compassion, mm. because to me, what you get through literature is a kind of enlightenment at the same time as as empathy, you get enlightened about people's lives. I've just read a series of novels that all take place in Eastern Europe, and I would never have yeah, a sense yeah. of what it is like to live there yeah. unless I had read these these books. So I, I think enlightenment and empathy in literature mm, go together. Mm. That's a great point. You know, I, I was reading, um, this is very, really totally off-the-wall Italian writer, Curzio Malaparte, who had, you know, all sorts of fascist um, associations. But he wrote this book, The Kremlin Ball. And, you know, growing up during the the Cold War, we we grew up with, like, this idea of the evil empire, right? That that Mm -hmm. it was communism versus democracy. And and we all know that, of course, there have been so many historical abuses of it. But it's hard to forget the original intent of it, where... There was a scene where he describes the workers um, coming home and for the first time being able to go to the theater. And this image of these workers streaming out of the trams in, in Moscow and going to the theater straight from the factory. You know, we, of course, know that historical experiment failed terribly. But just that image is like rescued. Like you say, it's rescued from time in literature. It's yep. It's, um, you know, whether it was I think it was a fictionalized account with based in fact, but. 
Where else would you get that? But we go back to what we were saying, what based on in fact, Malaparte is an, a, a wonderful example uh, of somebody who tells a story that you think is real because you feel it is real, mm -hmm. but he makes stuff up uh, in uh, The Skin, where he's talking about the American occupation of Naples. The, the, the key scene is where they're all starving and they start eating the uh, fish in the aquarium, the famous aquarium of Naples, and the last dish is the mermaid that they had in the aquarium. They bring her on a slaver to the table. So uh, he makes you feel empathy for a time and a people in a historical situation creating fictions, not giving you the, the, the number of people who died or that kind of fact. Um, In fact, it need not be history. Ursula Le Guin does this. Quite. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Ursula Le Guin. So, so a question I would have for all of you is, I, I, I think that was beautifully put, um, Alberto. If a society reads less, and we are reading less, you know, all the, 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 uh, the statistics show, and I think it's 30% less the last 10 years. You know, the average American reads 17 minutes a day and spends a combined six hours, something like that, on television and social media. Um, what, that what effect will that have? I mean, is there, will that somehow work against our capacity for things like compassion or you use the word enlightenment, Beverly? What, what would be, you know, if we could either speak of it in terms of empathy or just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what will happen if a society continues to engage with literature less and less as ours is. Well, you know, a literate populace is pretty new. Yes, okay. that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> Mass um, literacy. It's not a question yes. of, of are we getting worse, it's a question of can we be better. Can we be better? Yeah. And, and the, the, mm. what is, um, um, uh, um, leaves of grass. What, 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 and, and by Blue Ontario Shore, um, and I'm paraphrasing Whitman, which is okay because it's Whitman. Um, he's, he, he, he writes, um, if you want a better society, produce better people. <laughs> and I think that's what we, that's our opportunity. Not that we can be nostalgic for, for better people, just that we know we're capable. But we, we have, uh, every generation has a fake nostalgia for something that never happened. Yeah. We think, uh, ah, before we read, everybody had books. But when we really think of what happened, in my class in high school, uh, we were two to collect mm -hmm. books. And the others were busy with soccer and all sorts of other things. Hmm. We weren't a, a community of readers. The no. tiny percentage of readers, every society mm. since the invention of, of writing. And uh, as you say, we hope that maybe those readers can contribute to make better people. Mm. But from the evidence now, it's not happening. I think also every generation has fake panic. Yes. You know, yes. I, I read... There's this letter, E.B. White, in 1930s, he saw the first television set, and he really panicked. He said, this thing, this machine is going to destroy culture. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> I think we're doing fine. Yeah. But also, think about the alarm about the book. Yeah. 
The technology of the book was a terrifying technology. Uh, the train, and you see, it's you know these moral panics, moral panics about the novel in the 18th yes. century. That you know, one-handed reading, everyone. That was the terror. That young women were going to go into their boudoirs, you know, uh, literate girls, and get off on these uh, romance stories. And that's why uh, slaves were forbidden to learn to read. And, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. That was a terrifying prospect. That and that freedom thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, no. I wanted to ask about this idea that maybe some good writers, not maybe perhaps all, are particularly strong in having empathy. And then what's the relationship between that and sort of just general creativity? Because it seems there are some writers who write, imagine worlds that they've never experienced and are so wonderful in portraying it. And so mm. is there I, I a relationship? Don't, I don't think that there's a relationship with, between good literature and great empathy. Some of the best writers in the world were horrible people who would kick children in the street. Um, no, I was wondering whether some writers may benefit from being so empathic. I, I know not all. I think That's, the difference yeah. is in the readers. Yeah, yeah the difference is in the readers. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's... I'm a different reader from day to day. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I can never... Uh, when I'm looking to finish a novel, um, I can have this idea that I'm, I'm going to address these feelings on, but I'm a moving target. But when I think of everyone who's going to read it, it's going to mean something different to, to all, mm, to yeah. you know, my five or six readers. Um, <laughs> and and, and it's, it's not my job to set them up for anything. Um, whether I'm empathetic or not, it's my job to create a world. Mm. Now, am I empathetic? I hope. But you raise an interesting point because today there are many readers who say one can only imagine a world, one should only write about a world that one has lived. Yes, I words. know. Well, see, that, that, that's that, that whole um, lazy, it's <laughs> a true story <laughs> thing. Um, um, then you wouldn't read the Bible. Mm. Right. You wouldn't read much, actually. I mean, in, <laughs> you know, I feel like I, you know, in many ways I lead a sort of narrow life, you know, in my house, walking up the stairs and writing and then eating dinner. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, yes, it's about, I think it does expand our experience, as Beverly was saying. We carry these, you become fat with books after a while, right? And it's interesting that apparently those little studies I mentioned, the Oatly mm -hmm. uh, studies, that nonfiction does not have the same effect as right. fiction. Mm -hmm. Right, that's right. And yeah. this is a sort mm -hmm. of interesting thing. And also, guys, there was a gender difference. Now, I don't mean us here at this table. <laughs> of course not. What I mean is that in the general populace, men avoid fiction. Mm -hmm. They had lower fantasy levels, uh, and um, all, you know there was like a whole. And but, it but was not. I read a book with one hand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like this. 
in audience, you have a majority of women whenever you're in a literary in event. In literature so and science, it's reversed, right? Uh -huh. So I do the two kinds of talks. Right. One for a literary audience, one for like neurologists, uh, 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 neuroscience people, and then it's reversed. It's about 80% men. Now, we live in a culture that has divided these two. I mean, speaking of the Helix Center, mm -hmm. and I think it's certainly a problem for boys if they oh, grow yeah. up thinking that reading novels or poems are a form for sissies. of for sissies, mm -hmm. and that that's a losing proposition for the culture. Uh, you, you, I... I uh, of a question, but it's perhaps too personal. Mm -hmm. You said that your son is autistic. One. Does he read? He does. And yeah. how does he read? He reads. I find his reading interesting because he was in middle school a couple of years ago and he was reading Anna Karenina. Wow. And it was, I was amazed. He chose the book himself and I specifically asked him about how he felt about each of the characters. For instance, he really liked Steva. I said, well, you are not a judgmental person, right? Steva was having all these affairs. He said, well, yes. And he really, he liked everybody because, not in his words, everybody is having so much trouble in life in that book. Yeah. And I think, I don't think, he, I think he does express, he doesn't really have the ability to feel empathy, but he sees these things. Would you say that he doesn't have that ability or he doesn't know how to put it into words? I What's, think that's the expression, yeah. expressive mm -hmm. language is part of it, yes. Because he sounds empathetic and... To me too. Um, I like Steve. I think he's too. smart enough to realize that <laughs> you really can't employ the word. <laughs> but but it's interesting when you said boys are, you know, are are more are pushed more into the science and STEM, mm -hmm. and and I have noticed like like I, I teach at Princeton and the students who come in, often the boys are from STEM. You know, they, t they take writing class, they take literature class with the, with the idea that, you know, they cannot really make a living by right, reading or yeah. writing. They still have to go back to be their engineers. Yeah. That's the reality yeah. they face. Yeah. But at Princeton, those guys are not frightened of feeling effeminate if they read a novel. But I think there's something a little deeper. I mean, as a woman novelist, there are two of us here, that, that this happens to me all the time. When you sign books, mm. if men come up, they say, I don't read fiction, but my <laughs> wife does. Would you sign the book to her? And I've been pondering this for years now. And first of all, I think, why didn't your wife come? Number one. Number two, I, I wonder, I would like, so, so, and then I realized that, you know, again, when you read, you have to submit yourself to the text, to the authority of the text. That's part of the joy for me anyway. It's a form of opening yourself to this other voice an internal narrator that takes mm -hmm. over your own, mm -hmm. yours is gone, and that mm -hmm. voice is there. And that passionate submission mm -hmm. 
is hard mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for men who are invested in the idea of masculinity and mm -hmm. those particular hierarchies. Mm. Well, there's I said, a, a part of experiencing art, experiencing art is is venue and 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 also um, circumstance. I would I I don't give a lot of readings, but early on I I was I was reading in Maryland, and a man came up to me and. He was obviously interested in the fact that I had written a book, mm -hmm. and and his and his question. He was trying to process. He was a contractor. I learned from talking to him, and he was trying to process this. He wasn't familiar with 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 novels, and and his question was, "Did you type all of this yourself?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and and I immediately saw that this was necessary for him to understand the art in some level. And I said, "Well, yes, sir, I did." And that and that was that was good for him. He 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 could, he could accept right. that. Right. Um, so it's not only what's in a novel; it's what surrounds a novel. Um, and I think that's really um, uh, maybe that's. Well, that's right. So that I think these, if you want to talk about power structures or perceptions, they're all part of our reading experiences. Mm -hmm. And I know in my life that there have been moments when I've been open to a text mm. and moments when I've been closed mm -hmm. and I've mm -hmm. had to go back at another moment in my life, then suddenly I'm able to get it. You know, I've changed. The text is the same. But it, it's true that um, certain people, and not just men, certain women, are not able to submit to the text, to just give themselves Absolutely. up. There was uh, an anecdote. Um, uh, Atwood was signing books, a man came up to her and said, will you sign this for my wife? And she said, what about you, big boy? <laughs> That's it. I could use it. I'll, I'll, I'll give her credit. <laughs> but, but again, in our culture, the, um, the way we read and approach fiction in, in that naive way of it really happened. Uh, a, a, a woman um, uh, asked me about a novel. I have a novel in which the, the main character's head is severed from his body in the first scene. It's sewn back on, and the novel proceeds. And then <laughs> it's a love story. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, uh, this woman came up to me, and she's, again, trying to process. She says, is this autobiographical? <laughs> Well, I know that there are many in the room who would love to ask some questions, if you're open to this. Absolutely. And we know we all have fabulous stories to tell, but I ask that we limit ourselves to real questions and not declarations or narratives. So, uh, and remember, you will be on the internet forever. <laughs> That's a little bit of witness uh, intimidation, I think. <laughs> yes, please. Oh, yes, and please do come up to the mic. Well, Kenneth, I'd like to ask a question about internal chemistry. Oh, right. Your levels thereof, and are you open? Can you speak louder? Oxytocin. Oxytocin. Chemistry. Right. 
the chemistry of, of uh, empathy. Where are you? Where am I? Do we have it? And uh, can we exhibit it? Are there, are there other oxytocin people? Or? I don't even know how to spell it. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so it's, um, it's um, a hormone that's been associated with trust. And the thing is, it's also been associated with schadenfreude and, um, and other emotions. So the early ideas about oxytocin as the trust drug, it's, it's there um, in pregnancy, lactation, and birth. And so there was this idea that, and it's true if, you, if people inhale oxytocin, most people get more trusting. I mean, there are empirical studies that su suggest this, but it's also a lot more complicated than that, as you might imagine. It's not the trust, love. <laughs> My God, they put it in our water. <laughs> yes, heaven, heaven forbid. Um, but also, for example, there's something that interests me a lot, that borderline patients, um, it's a personality disorder, psychiatric disorder. If you give oxytocin to controls and borderline patients, the borderline patients have exactly the opposite response. There are about three, at least three papers that I've read on this. And what is the opposite response? They get upset, tense, mm -hmm. ang anxious, and of course this may be related to earlier attachment issues um, that are probably part of what we think of as borderline personality disorder. So it's, it's complicated what it has to do with empathy. Earlier I was talking about, I think attachment questions are important to think of in terms of empathy and, and uh, the development of the individual person. So, but that's about the chemistry I have. <laughs> Hi. I have a question about, um, so based on the discussion, my understanding is sympathy is feeling, sorry, sharing the feeling, while empathy is feeling into feeling as someone. So I have two questions. Is it correct then that empathy is more powerful to motivate action because you feel as someone? And then the second question is, in the thought experiment, if we humanity has to choose between the two, which one should we have and why? <laughs> Would you like to see? <laughs> now, now you have to answer it. Um, Hi. Um, <laughs> no, we, we have to be fun. It was a very good, it was a... That, yeah, that was a, a, a great question. Um, uh, I don't know if one has to choose between the two. In fact, I, 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 as a writer, I, I imagine that they work uh, in, ta in tandem, that, that sympathy and empathy are necessarily part of the same, the same thing, um, which is an attempt to, to use a really ordinary word, understand someone's uh, perspective and then their, and their situation. Um, and as you point out, why we want to understand that 
can be very different. I might want to understand it so I can know how to get to you, mm -hmm. but I might also want to understand it so that I know how to feel. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I'm thinking of literature. There's the ending of um, To Kill a Mockingbird when Scout walks back to Boo Radley's house and it's like literally the first time she's been on his porch and looked out into the world from his perspective, mm -hmm. right? And her dad had said, never judge someone until you walked a mile in his shoes. So that to me is this seamless blending of empathy and sympathy. She's imagining life as Boo Radley. And she feels, she says, it made me sad that we've never given him anything. So she's sympathetic towards him. So I think that, you know, the, at its best, the two are working in tandem. And some stories can just capture that blend so, so pitch perfectly. Right. Oops, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, no, no. I, do, I, think, I wonder if sometimes we do use sympathy as a shortcut, mm. so not to push ourselves to yeah. feel empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. Because as Alberto said, you know, we say, I feel sympathetic about the situation, which it just ends the discussion. Mm -hmm. Okay, but when someone, say someone loses someone, you don't say, I send my deepest empathies. No. And you really feel, I send my deepest that. I don't see the dismissiveness of it. I, to me, it's, it's an immersion in someone else's. To me, it's compassion, the term earlier. Yes, but you know, you can sign that sympathy card as a politician yeah. who, is, who, right. who, who, is, who wants to express that and be acknowledged for expressing it. Um, and that's different from someone who, who is feeling sympathetic, but also empathetic, thinking about the right, fact that right. they have lost someone. It's interesting that you also write condolences because you are saying condolere to uh, feel pain with you. Mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah. that is, um, I think, a more interesting uh, emotion. Also, I think people can have too much empathy. You know, that doctors, for example, the psychiatrists, I have a seminar on narrative psychiatry at Weill Cornell, and these uh, psychiatric residents, we talk a lot about empathy and how to manage empathy. Because, you know, if you're feeling really what the patient is feeling, then you kind of go to pieces. And in order to not go to pieces, you have to have certain defenses that will help you manage the relation. That's the advantage of being a reader and not a psychoanalyst. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. So uh, I get that as a reader, we can feel empathy about a characterization or a book or a screenplay. I'm wondering, as writers, are you conscious of creating empathy or are you just creating something creative? And do you give it any thought in your work? Well, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm <coughs> Of average intelligence, and, and I, but I know that I can. I don't believe that. But I, can, I, I cannot create empathy. Um, I, I can tell a story. Uh, whether whether someone has an empathetic response to that story, I can't control. In fact, that's the only reason I write is because I cannot control what a story does when I release it, and it's instructive to me. And and some of the response to the work. Uh, allows me to understand my own empathetic feelings about about the work. So it's uh, so, so. Not only is is any novel a work in progress always. I, I say that. It's, so, so am I the writer in, in in relation to that work? 
But as a writer and as a good writer, um, you know consciously or unconsciously that this detail that you will add will do something, you call it empathy or whatever, but it will create a different response in the reader. That is to say, when, when Dante ha has himself as a pilgrim trip on a stone, uh, or when uh, um, Pinocchio realizes that his father has sold his shirt to buy, uh, his coat to buy him a school book, that detail does more than advance the plot. But so you're talking about my empathy toward the reader. At the, uh, in, in no, creating way. empathy in the reader. That is to say, by uh, putting that detail in, if you are a good writer, you know that the reader at this point will shed a tear. I, th I think that's, I think that's, I think that's more functional than what you were saying. That's, that, that's my ability to feel empathy toward the reader and to get at the reader. Yeah. And, and not necessarily my empathy or sympathetic feelings toward my character. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, so yes. it's at that, yes. and, that, and that's, that's more... Uh, uh, technical. Technical, mechanical, <laughs> and... and, and and I run from it like crazy, um, because because no, yes, but because in in, all, in in that way, as writers, we are manipulating a story. But also, uh, as I as I said before, every reader is different, and to 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 address my understanding of my empathetic feelings toward one reader is to maybe miss mm. yeah. everyone else. Um, yeah. So. Yes, on a, on, a, on a very, very rudimentary level, that has to be present, but... But you have to know how to balance it. Uh, Oscar Wilde said mm. that uh, you have to have a heart of stone not to laugh at the death of little Nell. Well, well yes, well, it's... it's um, uh, writing is full of contradictions. You have to write what's inside you, but you have to keep it at arm's length yeah. so that it doesn't become you. Um, yeah. And... and and that's difficult, and that and that happens. Well, sometimes it happens. But, um, if the stars are kind. Yeah. <laughs> yes, is a um, a social justice warrior uh -huh. who believes that uh, human beings live by heuristic rule of thumbs, and we we live by stories, and we don't make rational decisions. We make emotional decisions. Um, is, a, is the human race is heading off the cliff, and you people as writers want to um, change the direction of humanity, tell them new stories. Um, these tools of empathy and so forth, um, what are your thoughts in terms of how do you reach people who have kind of set in their ways about what they believe the world is, can you use these tools to actually change people's minds? Yeah. You know, uh, as I heard your thing, I remember earlier, you, uh, uh, Percival, you said you had five or six readers. Uh, there's a famous Italian writer, Alessandro Manzoni, who said, I miei 25 lettori, 
my 25 readers. So he had 400% more than you. Yeah. But anyway, um, Manzoni was, wrote this essay once where someone criticized writers of doing something. They said only writers of genius should use this device. And Manzoni said, is someone really going to stop themselves and say, am I or am I not a genius? And that question sort of reminds me of that a little bit in that, you know, I don't know um, if a writer can really ask him or herself, how I'm going to shape the world, you know, they're, they're trying so hard just to get the story right. They're trying to kind of tell it in a convincing way, to try and use language in a certain way. I, that layer of instrumentality, in my experience, my small experience, has never really uh, entered into the equation. What about turning it around? Because I don't think writers can know whether, you know, every once in a while someone will come up and say something about this really had a big, made a big impression on me or whatever. But if we turn around and think about the books that have changed us, right, that have reoriented in some important mm -hmm. way our vision of the world. So that... I, certainly it's happened to me. I think it's probably happened to everyone. If you had to here. choose one, which would it be? Oh, God. You know, well, it's funny because you mentioned Little Nell. Uh, there are two that I read when I was 13. David Copperfield mm -hmm. and Wuthering Heights that scared mm -hmm. the life out of me because, you know, it was completely amoral. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, yeah. just to that amoral point, because <laughs> you mentioned you're a social justice warrior, and I think that's, a, you know, beautifully put. I guess what I would say is, there, you know, I think of Sartre at the end of his life where he had dedicated his life to social justice warrioring. And he was all about engaged literature. But he ended his life obsessed with Flaubert. He and he would repeat not. passages of Madame Bovary. And he wrote this biography, The, the, idiot, the idiot of his family. family, where, you know, making fun really of, of Baudelaire's, uh, it's not, not Baudelaire, um, Flaubert. Flaubert's yeah. lack of social engagement. But to me, that, that's the space that literature also has a social thrust. It's not necessarily in, in engaging socio-political issues, but in changing the lives of readers in this dimension that is both in and of, not of this world. In other words, that if we instrumentalize, if we peg literature too much to socio-political themes, we lose that space mm -hmm. of the Bovaries, of the um, Wuthering Heights that are, you know, that they can change people in a different way. There, there are two uh, novels that come to mind. Richard yeah. Powers decided to write about climate change by writing fiction in the overstory. Yeah. And here, a 700-page novel mm. on the destruction of the forests. And I cannot tell you how many people I know who have read that. And Amitov Ghosh does the same thing. He writes about climate change through his novels, mm. whether it was The Glass Palace or now The Gun Warrior, I think was his last one. You know, so so I think there is a way in which you get into people mm -hmm. who will pay attention if you put persons into the tale that mm -hmm. they wouldn't necessarily I read nonfiction mm -hmm. on it. So I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I was also going to say that there is an important distinction between instruction and just yes. exhibiting complexity, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. exhibiting yeah. ambiguity, which yeah. is obviously important yeah. in fiction. Thank you. Uh, thank you for a very evocative discussion. Uh, this is a follow-up question about, uh, about obsession. Uh, yesterday, many of us spent several hours watching television. Yeah. It's also a follow-up on television. Now, a young woman sat there 
Mm. Young by my standards. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, aroused many different emotions. Yeah. Uh, she was both attacked and praised in, for, for 30 years of work. She described a situation where she was sacked in a fairly public way a couple of months ago. Did that arouse empathy? Did that arouse sympathy? What did that arouse? And what are we going to do about it? <laughs> Depends on who you are. Yes, if you watch, um, what's that science fiction channel? Uh, Fox News. Um, <laughs> then, then, then you dismiss this, this, this obviously in, intelligent and engaged person um, and, and don't venture toward anything like, like empathy um, because one, you may not be capable of it and, and, and two, um, it, it, it raises too many questions um, that you're not capable of answering. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, sadly, you can't argue with people who won't look and that's where we stand in this culture. But that reminds me of the earlier point um, where I said my sense was that people are reading less today, that this is kind of part of a larger crisis about our social relation to literature. And the consensus in the group seemed to be the opposite, that this is kind of a constant, that readers are always a kind of self-selecting minority. And yet, I also think that it's, if we look at history, History is not always, there are periods of cultural decline. In, in other words, it's very hard, as they say, to catch a falling knife and know exactly where one stands. But we can't, I also think it's dangerous to have a neutral attitude that this is just the way of the world. You know, perhaps yeah. our, our, our weakening engagement with literature is part of a general lowering of public discourse and that there is a connection between the I two. So. That, that's sort of you know, my, my stance on it, where yeah. it's, it's impossible to pretend we don't live in an age where f false narratives are prevalent. Yeah. And you know, I always tell my students, fake news is the opposite of literature. <laughs> literature tells you it's make-believe and it sort of brings you to the truth, whereas fake news pretends it's real mm -hmm. and is just trying to manipulate you. And, and so you know, I, I guess I'm less... Um, less likely to kind of see this as just business as usual. I do think there is a connection between... But I, I think there is, there is a side that's business as usual because readers have always been in minority and choosing between uh, the circus and uh, a, a reading of poetry, most of the Romans went to the circus. But uh, what is constant and has to remain constant as well is the fight for culture, for those better people uh, that Whitman wanted. And uh, the fact that the, the decline is constant or steady doesn't mean that we should give up. Um, uh, in Atwood's The Testaments, the character of Aunt Lydia uh, is exactly the danger with which we are faced. The, the woman who has been fighting for her rights, for women's rights, for what she feels is just, and at a certain point 
feels that the social pressure is so great mm. that she just gives in and becomes part of the enemy. The That's the danger. Mm. Yeah, I, I just want to bring the other side is literature can be propaganda too. Yeah. Mm. That's sure. where I came from is, you know, literature doesn't always do good things. Literature... But is it know. literature at that point? In other words... Yeah. Well... So, for example, yes. like think of great. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think you know, yeah, they're called literature, right? These are books. Did you read these books actually? To actually, I think these books probably have done more harm than good to communist countries, right? But are we so arrogant to say they're not literature? Yeah, because there, there is some were good. I mean, we yeah. were in my adolescence in Argentina, we were flooded with these bad translations of Russian novels. And, and, and some were very good. Uh, thus was Iron Forged and uh, um, the, the Flowing of the Dawn and so on. Yeah. And, 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 flowing and, of the Dawn. Yes. Yeah. So, Did you ever read Cement? No. Oh. No, I don't recommend it's it. It sounds like a John Dos Passos novel. But you know, if you're reading, you are thinking. Um, whether you're consuming propaganda or not, and thinking is always better than not thinking. Um, That's a Belgian proverb. Is it? <laughs> um, and I... You know, if you, when, you, when we read our history in, in depth, we... we Maybe things aren't worse than they ever were, but they, they feel like it because we are experiencing it exactly. right now. Um, but some things are really different. I don't know if a soundbite is better than real thinking. Uh, I suspect that it is, uh, that a soundbite is not as good as real thinking. But I give my students or I challenge them to go watch one of our debates and then go read the, 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 the Douglas-Lincoln debates. Yeah. And tell me how they are alike. Mm -hmm. That's right. I agree. Um, I was just going to bring up something of this point because um, I'm in the art world, and there was a time when, after the abstract expressionists, the pop art came out, and then there was the philosophy uh, that art and life are one, and it began to undermine a certain zeitgeist came out, and also the thought of the continual present rather than the arrested time in the past. And so now today I see so many people, there's so many stories of uh, fake news, news, autobiographies, confessions, that they feel literature is all around them. So I just wondered how some of you felt with this onrush. I know in the art world we suffer also from something of that. Art has been categorized into political and feminist and all kinds of categories that really come from the media and the news world rather than the assimilation in time of, exp of interior experience. And so I'm just curious to know how you feel about this continual storytelling of the, of the media and everywhere uh, in terms of the fiction world, which I think is and has, does have some problems. Maybe in the countries that are less advanced with media, you're getting some interesting stories. I mean, there are things coming out sometimes from Afghanistan or other places where it's still a bardic tradition. No, I, I, I think this is a... A, a very good point, and you, and we were really talking about it earlier, about you know fictions, and this is here too. This is not just uh, propaganda of various kinds, but fictions that reassure the reader w with conventions that they already know. 
right? Mm. Yeah. Movies are like this all the time. You watch a movie, so what is that giving to the viewer or to the reader? It's giving what's already known. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of repetition, which then I think is not terribly helpful. That's hardly new. Um, it's not at uh, all new. Art, art, art is always... Uh, uh, complex art and art that 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 presents problems has always played second fiddle to folk music um, absolutely yeah, you but and the thing becomes to uh, but it brings people to art i don't i don't really like television shows but um, it would be great if on a television show we had a hero who wasn't a superhero uh, but a, but a thinking hero and 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 as and maybe as an artist, it it's a failure of mine that I haven't tried to produce one. Right, um, right. But it's always the case that that we will be fighting against the easier things to consume. Oh, um, and I consume them too. Um, and I think maybe just as individual, we just have to push back a little. You know, I just have to use this example because I wrote the novel where. A mother had a conversation with a son who committed suicide and died. So they talked, you know, across the border between death and life. And my publisher said, "Can we publish as a memoir? <laughs> because it's it's more attractive, you know, in a way. It is more." I said, "Well, nothing. <laughs> I mean, it, it it came from my life, and nothing in this book happened in real life. I cannot talk to a dead son, but that's a, that's a, like what's what, what's the easiest way well, to?" Yeah. So first of all, in you know, when mass literacy came about, I mean, you're absolutely right. These, what was really hot, translations of anti-clerical French pornography into English. They sold like hotcakes, right? So nuns having sex and, you know, it was, uh, 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 that was really big hot stuff, you know? And when you look at the numbers, you know, what Middlemarch, for example, sold, uh, it's not that many and it was a big success. So you're absolutely right that there's a minority of what we, we like to hear, think of as serious readers. But, um, but I think that minority is essential. Uh, uh, you know, I, I guess I hold on to the idea of literature as a category. Um, it's the books that a culture values over time, separate from all this, the noise that's swirling around. If you think of a book like um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, right, where everyone's happy, it's a dystopia, they're doing drugs, having sex, and they're, there's something banned. Books are banned. Right? That's the, the world leaders don't want people reading books. They don't want them, I, I, they see it as a threat. And I really think that... They see that, it as, as melancholy making. That it leads right. to complex emotions, it leads to complex thought. And I think there is a connection between, in a really profound way, between great literature and um, a sense of freedom. Yeah. Okay, this um, will be our last question. Um, I wonder if we could go back to the beginning. I do have a question, but I, I want to um, make a suggestion about the question. The question is going to be whether the panelists would agree or disagree, and if, if disagree, why, with the following distinction, which is that empathy may have more to do with imagination than sympathy does. Um, and I would think of empathy as 
primarily the ability to imagine the feelings of another, which is less viscerally involving than sympathy and therefore more constructive in some situations. And if we do think of it that way, might it explain some of these issues that we're struggling with, such as the wish for, um, or the, the, the way people are drawn to emotional engagement in sound bites and tweets and so on, with a diminution of the ability to imagine something different and other. Mm. Also, might it contribute to the differences between men and women in terms of responses to fiction, where many times men who are um, very comfortable with not being stereotypically um, male are nevertheless less interested in fiction, and might that have something to do with differences in comfort with imagining? Well, it, yeah, it's again, it's like what, so the roots of the word imagination come from image, and so that would go back to a form of mental imagery, I think, if you want to take the roots. So to imagine probably is reliant also on memory, another form of mental imagery, right? You can't really imagine unless you've experienced something and you have mental imagery to, to, uh, to use. So then the question is imagination a cognitive function with emotion attached? Um, there are probably unconscious forms of imagination. You know how Man von Helmholtz talked about unconscious inference as part of a way to predict what's going to happen. I'm just throwing out a few things. I don't have the whole answer. Um, is imagination more about uh, this kind of cognitive function or? Well, I would remove the word image only because so much of it is, is, is language. And, and I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I suppose we could continue to use it, but somehow that privileging of, of sight um, mm -hmm. seems seems uh, seems to disregard the fact that we don't think without language. You know, well, once we reach the mirror stage <laughs> or something, <laughs> uh, um, but that that um, you know, I, I'm I, I this whole thing about um, I'm interested in this thing about what you said about, and I, I, I've seen it myself in bookstores, people, more women reading, but I also see that at stables I ride, and, and it's always girls yeah. Yeah. At, yeah. At, at the stables. I don't see any boys. <laughs> um, um, but it's, it's, in my personal life, I don't encounter those differences, and so, it's interesting for me to hear them, and when I imagine what you're saying, then I'm calling on stereotypic uh, images of the culture that allow me to understand it, and I'm not quite comfortable with, with that. I, I don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You wrote a whole book called Dictionary of Imaginary Places. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, but the that was imaginary geography. <laughs> the the utopias that we uh, we tried to imagine and never worked. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Like like Cleveland. <laughs> okay. Okay. Exactly. okay. But this this is this is about this isn't really a question, but it is. So um, in my world, I'm an actor. So actors yeah. have to use imagination all the time. But the imagination comes from words. Hmm. So if I play Lady Macbeth, which I have, I'm not, I haven't experienced murder. I've never murdered anyone. Yeah. Um, if I'm doing Tracy Letts, August Osage County, then I have to know this woman who is drugged out of her mind, alcoholic with her children, who she's hmm. destroying, but she loves and doesn't want to lose. So there is within us, I believe, we are born with or without empathy, and it would be very difficult to be an actor if one didn't have, it wasn't born with empathy, because you wouldn't know how to get the imagine, your imagination to work with the words. I mean, you have Shakespeare, so he's given you that, and when he wrote, he certainly wrote a tragedy or a comedy, um, and the universality is because he is able to make us think things that we have all felt somewhere in our lives, and that's why his plays have endured. Um, but it is, a, for me, it's, it isn't really a question of words or imagination or sympathy or empathy. It's that it's a marriage of all of those things coming together. Um, and, and also the experience of living, raising a child, losing a child, a child not speaking to you for years, and you don't know how to get back and ask for forgiveness. You don't know how to, you, 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 we don't know how to talk to each other. So we read and we have brilliant people like yourselves helping us. And then when you go to the theater and we read a great book, I hope part of what we do is that it does change us. So, but it, to me, it's all, it's a filigree, you know. So thank you so much. You were all so compelling. You had us stay here willingly and happily and gladly and gratefully for the whole afternoon. So thank you for really a brilliant conversation.